shifting gears here, natural segue, welcome back to our series, Knowing and Encountering God. What we're, um, we've been doing uh, for the last several weeks now, if you're kind of hopping in new, is we are talking about how an encounter with God can change your life by looking at all these case studies in Scripture of, of people who had encounters with God that changed theirs. And so the kind of uh, implied statement um, underneath every one of the last several teachings has been an encounter with God is great, and you should desire one, and you should pray for one, and you, you need one. Um, with that, I really feel like I would be failing you, and I, I really just feel like I'd be remiss if in this series I didn't at least take a week to address those times in life when you are desperate for an encounter with God, but it just seems to elude you. Um, Today, we're going to be looking at a psalm that's a prayer written by a man who's not very well known in Scripture. His name's Haman, and that's exactly where he was. And so here's the question. What are you supposed to do when you are just absolutely desperate to have an encounter with God? You know how badly you need one. You've done everything you can. You've, you've used the means of grace. You've availed yourself to spiritual disciplines. You've done everything that you can to put yourself in a position where you can experience uh, the presence of God in a felt, lived way, but it's just not happening. Today we're looking at a, a prayer that was born from exactly that place. And so if that sounds familiar to you, then there's a chance that this will be the most important week of this series for you. I want to begin by reading Psalm 88. It's only 18 verses, so we'll, um, we'll simply read the whole thing start to finish. And uh, I'm confident few of these verses um, are going to hit home with a f- more than a few people today. Verse 1, Lord God of my salvation, I cry out before you day and night. May my prayer reach your presence. Listen to my cry. For I've had enough troubles, and my life is near Sheol. I'm counted among those going down to the pit. I'm like a man without strength, abandoned among the dead. I'm like the slain lying in the grave, whom you no longer remember and who were cut off from your care. You've put me in the lowest part of the pit, in the darkest places, in the depths. Your wrath weighs heavily on me. You've overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've distanced my friends from me. You've made me repulsive to them. I'm shut in and cannot go out. My eyes are worn out from crying. Lord, I cry to you all day long. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do departed spirits rise up to praise you? Will your faithful love be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of oblivion? But I call to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer meets you. Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? From my youth, I've been afflicted and near death. I suffer your horrors. I'm desperate. Your wrath sweeps over me. Your terrors destroy me. They surround me like water all day long. They close in on me from every side. You've distanced loved one and neighbor from me. Darkness is my only friend. This is God's word. A couple of months ago now, I think it was actually the week of Easter, I got lost on YouTube again, and I searched for uh, Tim Keller. And um, something immediately struck me. I actually made a note of it, wrote it in a Word document, and I knew it was going to be the intro to this message. 
Um, Tim Keller, as you may or may not know, is an internationally sought-after speaker. He's a New York Times best-selling author. He was a pastor in Manhattan for a number of years. And um, because of his fame, all of his videos have uh, tons of views. And uh, on the right-hand side, uh, I could not find a video of his with less than 100,000 views. Actually reminded me of myself in that regard. Just kidding. Trying to, trying to lighten the mood here. Um, but, but one video of his, and exactly one video of his, broke a million. The title of the video was, How to Deal with Dark Times. And the more I thought about it, uh, the easier it was for me to understand why that video, and that video alone, got over a million people to click on it. I'll tell you two things you already know. Number one, um, everybody experiences dark times this side of eternity. Number two, nobody naturally goes through them well. That's why they're dark times. They're real difficult to navigate. And you, you, you stumble and you fall and you, you bump into things and you don't know where you're going or which way you came or any of that kind of stuff. But I'll, I'll tell you, any belief system, any religion, uh, any philosophy of life, any worldview, whatever, that does not and cannot help you deal with dark times is not worth giving your life to. Because on this side of eternity, it's a matter of time. And I'm speaking to, to two kinds of people today. You're either in the middle of one or you got one around the corner. That's just the way that it is on this side of eternity. I'm here to say, thankfully, Christianity, uh, more so than any other belief system, can help you deal with dark times. What we're looking at today in Psalm 88 is truly an incredible resource for helping us prepare for dark times, understand dark times, and above all else, get through them. And what I want to do is look at this psalm through three lenses. We're going to talk about, first off, the inevitability of dark times. Uh, secondly, the potential that is uniquely found within dark times. And thirdly, the hope that we have through dark times. So with that, uh, let's begin with just their inevitability. Um, and with that, let, let's make sure that we understand exactly what we're talking about when we talk about a dark time. You, you may have noticed this may haven't, um, but this, um, this psalm uses the word darkness three times at uh, perfectly symmetrical intervals. It appears in verse 6, again in verse 12, and then at the end in verse 18. And if you get into this psalm, what you'll find is that there's two kinds of darkness that are talked about that really all of the darkness that you're going that, that to experience in life uh, falls into one of these two categories, uh, external darkness and internal darkness. You might know what I'm talking about just by hearing me phrase it that way, but let me just briefly walk through this. First off, external darkness is darkness found outside in the circumstances of this man's life. Uh, this, the man, the author of this psalm, obviously has incredibly, um, at least to him, incredibly immense, difficult problems in his life outside of him. Uh, darkness in his circumstances. We don't know exactly what they are. If you read the book of Psalms, uh, I would say rarely, if ever, do you learn exactly what the author of that particular psalm is going through? And I think God did that on purpose because what that does is it makes the psalms just universally, relatably timeless. Uh, but what's going on in this man's life is, is first off, relationally, uh, whatever he's dealing with has psychologically, emotionally, and relationally isolated him from everyone who loves him. He just feels like he's in this kind of prison that he can't get out of. You know, he's surrounded by people but totally alone. Maybe that Sounds familiar to somebody. On top of that, he's also dealing with um, a number of physical issues. He says that his eyes are worn out from crying. 
Uh, he says that uh, he's, he's, he's not sleeping because he's calling out to God day and night. Uh, he says that he's basically run out of strength. There's no more physical strength. There's no more, you know, vigor to kind of get up and face life. Um, and he actually says, and I don't think he's being hyperbolic, I think he's being literal, that he is near death. So that's the external darkness of his life. But with that, he also um, talks about internal darkness. Here's what I mean by internal darkness. And this, this is the kind of darkness that's way worse. Verse 1 of this psalm makes it clear that the author of this psalm has put his trust in God as his Savior. It's why it begins, and he, re- he refers to God as Lord, God of my salvation. But really, the essence of this psalm is, is he's, it's, it's just a cry of the heart where what he's basically saying is he has absolutely no sense of God's presence at all in his life. He says he feels like God's wrath has rested on him. He feels rejected by God, forsaken by God. He says he feels like God has actually hidden his face from him. That's relational language. What that basically means is though he has devoted his life to God, though he has surrendered his will to God, uh, he has absolutely no sense of the the love or the care or even simply the presence of God in his life. None at all. Two years ago, I was, I was preaching through Proverbs. And uh, I came across a verse in Proverbs that to me is probably the most sobering verse in the entire book. It's Proverbs eighteen fourteen. It says, A man's spirit can endure sickness, but who can survive a broken spirit? A man's spirit can endure sickness, but who can survive a a broken spirit. What that verse is, is communicating, that's actually a statement about the way that you were made. That verse is saying that you, by your design, can handle incredible, probably would actually blow your mind what you're capable of dealing with as far as external darkness. You are capable of dealing with incredible brokenness and loss and sorrow and sadness and everything that we can call darkness uh, external to you, as long as that darkness remains external to you. But what this proverb is saying is the moment that that darkness around you starts to seep in you and it becomes inner darkness, internal darkness, according to the word of God, when that happens to you, you have officially arrived at a situation in life that is unsustainable. That's not an opinion. That's what God is saying in his word. Who can survive a broken spirit? Implied answer, no one can. That's where the author of this psalm is. Uh, I just want to make this point before I move forward. That's not surprising. What I just said about how bad this guy's life is is not shocking if you know anything about the Psalms. Um, most of the Psalms, there's 150 of them, most of them fall into the category of what we call Psalms of Lament, where the author of that Psalm is going through all kinds of problems. Uh, so it's not unique that the author of this Psalm has problems. What's unique is that he never gets out of them in this Psalm. Uh, if you survey the, the, the 150 psalms in the Psalter, what you'll find is that almost every single psalm ends with some kind of turn, some glimmer of hope, some light at the end of tunnel, some kind of hint that things were beginning to change as a result of this prayer that you know, the psalmist prayed in the presence of God. But this one doesn't end that way. If you read it in the Hebrew, our verse 18 says, darkness is my only friend. That's the English translation. In the Hebrew, the final word of this psalm is darkness. If you literally translated it, it ends with the author simply saying, it's just this cry that says, oh, darkness. So this is a psalm that has darkness all throughout it, and it ends in utter darkness, without a glimmer of hope, without a glimmer of light. That's where the author of this psalm is, and and by the language of this psalm, he has been here for a long time. 
He's talking about the sleep that he's lost. He's talking about being at the end of his rope. He wants, basically, his life is over, he feels like. He sort of wants his life to be over. This is not early onset darkness. This is, this is a, a situation that, um, that, that the author has been in for a, a really long time. So here's, here's the first question that jumps off the page. Why is something that depressing recorded in Scripture for us? What, what, could, what, what, what is God want to teach us through a psalm like that. And I'll tell you, the, the very first thing that this psalm teaches you and I before it teaches us anything else is that you can be like Haman and find yourself in a situation like this. Here's what I mean by that. This psalm is proof that you can believe in God, you can live rightly to the best of your ability, you can call out to God day and night, you can pray without ceasing. You can avail yourself of the means of grace. You can be used mightily by God. Haman literally is writing a chapter in God's word. I don't think anybody in this room or listening online is going to be used that powerfully by God. All of those things can be true, and you can still be plunged into a period of utter darkness outside of you and inside of you that does not let up for a very long period of time. Before this psalm teaches us anything else, that's what it teaches us. And as heavy as that is, that in and of itself is one of the most helpful truths we can learn because what that does when we allow it to really sink in is it prevents us from being caught off guard when we find ourselves in a Psalm 88 period of time in our lives. A couple of years ago, Reggie, our volunteer serve coordinator, somehow talked me into running a race called the Charles Street 12-Miler which is a 12-mile race, I'm guessing you would have put that part together, that begins in Towson and it ends in Baltimore. 12 miles is the longest distance I had ever run in my life, and to this day still is. That race kind of retired me from running, actually. And I remember when we were getting ready for the race, Reggie um, repeatedly, he kind of drilled into me, he said, you, you, when you think about this race, you need to think in terms of six up and six down. And what he meant was, the first six miles of that race is basically a, a slow and steady climb, after that, you know, you kind of reach the peak and it starts to get easier. And so we start, I remember, when, you know, on race day when we began the race, it was exactly like Reggie said. But then something really strange happened. We were at um, just about mile three, and looking ahead of us, the, the track took a really sharp, basically a 90-degree left turn, so you couldn't see past it. And on this corner, there was this guy holding a sign, and he was calling out to the runners. And I couldn't hear what he was saying, but as we got closer to him, he was, he was calling out to us, and he was telling us, that, uh, you know, it was, it was basically all downhill from there, that the worst part was over, it was about to get easier. And that was really strange for me to hear because I distinctly remembered Reggie saying, this is six up, six down, not three up, nine down. So we passed this guy and we took the hard left and I looked ahead and I wish I would have just taken a picture so I could show you, but it looked like someone had paved a road up a mountain. It was just, a, it, like you, it, I thought I was going to need a ladder to finish the next leg of this race. And so although I am a, a, a Christian and a pastor, if I can just confess something here, I wanted to break that guy's sign over his head. There was like a spirit of bitterness, you know, welling up inside of me. I'm a human, you know, permit me, um, because he was leading people astray. He was li literally, the guy was like a wolf in sheep's clothing, leading thousands of people astray that day. But thankfully, uh, I knew better than to listen to him. Uh, because anybody who's run any amount of distance knows what I'm about to say is, is true. Running uphill is bad enough by itself. You don't need to help out that kind of bad. It's really bad. It's miserable running up a hill. But running up a hill 
when you thought you were going to be running down a hill, that's not bad, that's soul crushing. That'll, whatever, you know, fortitude you had, it will stomp its guts out. Because when you start playing that mental game of, wait a minute, I thought this was the easiest part of the race, and now you, you know, you're climbing this mountain, that's when you know, bodies start falling, people drop out of the race. And my point is, in, in, in saying that, it's actually a, you know, it's a funny story, but it's a really important point. The point is that so often in life, it's not our experiences that break us. It's the expectations we had coming into them. Anybody live any length of time knows exactly what I'm saying. It's not the things that we go through. It's the expectations we allowed ourselves to entertain before we went through them. And I can't quantify what I'm about to say, but I think it's observable. I believe we're living in a society that has set us up, more than any society that's that's come before us, to fail when we find ourselves in the place where the author of this psalm is. I think we are set up to crumble like a house of cards when we find ourselves here, more than any society that's come before us in human history, because our society basically indoctrinates us with this idea that if we just employ the right techniques, we can avoid things like this. That's why every year our most... um, Our highest selling literature or our most viewed media or TED Talks or whatever it is can all be lumped into this category of self-help. The reason for that, the reason that we we gobble up that content is because we want to believe and we do believe, I think that, that you know this in yourself, I can certainly see to myself, we hold on to this notion that through our hard work and our skill and our wisdom and our ingenuity, we can avoid the bad life, live the good life and get everything we want out of life. And what that does is it sets us up to be absolutely devastated beyond repair when we find ourselves in a position like the author of this psalm found himself. And so you, you can read Psalm 88 as, you know, man, that's pretty depressing. I think what it is is it's evidence that God loves you and he loves me way too much to allow us to move through life with a naivety uh, that leaves us unprepared and eventually devastated by the dark times of life. Uh, uh, One commentator put it this way, reflecting on Psalm 88, and we'll we'll move on after this. It says, this darkness can happen to a believer, this psalm says. It doesn't mean you're lost. This darkness can happen to someone who doesn't deserve it. After all, it happened to Jesus. It doesn't mean you've strayed. This darkness can happen at any time as long as this world lasts, because only in the next will such things be done away with. So first and foremost... Darkness is inevitable. Obviously, that's a bit of a downer. And if I left us here, then, you know, wouldn't, I don't think anybody would be particularly infused with the joy of the Lord this morning. What this psalm also shows us is that as these times are inevitable, there's also a potential for growth. Um, These these times, um, there's, there's a potential for things to happen in your life that I think it's appropriate to say can't happen apart from these times in your life. Uh, and, and kind of two ways I want to think through this idea. Um, let's talk about the potential for us to see things about God that we could never otherwise see, and then I want to talk about the potential for us to grow in ways that we could never otherwise grow. So we'll kind of break that into, into those two ideas. Um, first off, uh, this is ironic, but this is so like God, um, that the times of darkness... Scripture shows us again and again, and I'm sure people would attest in this room, times of darkness tend to ironically be the times in our life when we can see the grace of God most clearly, and it has a tendency to shine most brightly. Uh, And and to explain that, what I want to do is just really look at how this, the author of this psalm speaks. First off, 
Um, this psalm is not written by David like most psalms are. There's a little introduction that I didn't read uh, right underneath the, the, the title or, or the, the chapter heading uh, that says it's written by a man named Haman. Haman was a, uh, according to 1 Chronicles 6, he was a leader in what was known as the Kohathite Guild, which was basically a, a group of music, musicians and uh, poets that were essentially the worship leaders for God's people. They wrote uh, the, the songs that became um, these psalms and, and that led God, God's people into worship. My point is, he was a spiritual leader, Haman was, the author of this psalm was. But if you look real carefully, he's not speaking the way you would expect a spiritual leader to speak to God. It, it, let me give you three examples of this. First off, when the psalm opens, it, it, it has this air of poetic beauty, like lo, a lot of the psalms do. Lord, God of my salvation. Based on that, you think, all right, this is going to be dignified and, and polished and um, you know, kind of reserved and respectful. But you, you get into the psalm and you realize it's just not that. Uh, let me read verses 6 to 8. He's speaking to God. He says, you have, put me in the, you have put me in the lowest part of the pit, in the darkest places, in the depths. Your wrath weighs heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have distanced my friends from me. You have made me repulsive to them. I'm shut in and can't go out. Now, you can doll that up however you want to, but the plain fact is the author of this psalm is looking at God and saying, this is your fault. You did this to me. Let me just take a second to ask you, would you talk to God like that? Verses 10 to 12, do you work wonders for the dead? Do departed spirits rise up to praise you? Will your faithful love be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of oblivion? That reads more like, like a cross-examination than a prayer. What, what he's saying here, layman's terms, is, God, I would love to be able to praise you. I would love to be able to be a billboard of your faithfulness and your goodness and your glory and your righteousness, but how am I supposed to do that when I'm literally on the cusp of death and you refuse to come through for me? That's what he's saying there. Then you, you skip to the end in verse 15. This is a, this is a it might sound strange, but I think, I think you can relate to this. Verse 15, from my youth I've been afflicted and near death. What he's doing there is what we all do when we experience undue hardship. He's taking the pain of his present circumstance and he's reading his entire life through the lens of what he's going through now. This is the equivalent of a, a, you know, a married couple that's in the middle of a fight and then one of them finally snaps and you realize it's about everything except the thing you thought you were fighting about. And one spouse says to the other one, you know what, you've been doing this for years. I've felt this way for decades. I've just never said anything till now. And then you go through the list of all the things you've been quietly bitter about. That's what this psalmist is doing to God. He's, he's looking back over his life and he's saying, you, you've never been there for me. This isn't just about what you're leading me through now. You've actually never been there for me. My point in saying this is no matter, no matter how you try to, to smooth this over or polish this up or, or, or put lipstick on it, this reads less like a prayer offered by a spiritual leader and more like a teenager yelling at their parents. And the fact, here's my point in saying all this, the fact that this psalm has been preserved by God in his word only makes it a greater testament to exactly how gracious and kind and merciful of a God he actually is. And here's why. Here's why. Years ago, I read this quote in a book called The Songs of Jesus, which is a year-long devotional through the book of Psalms. The, the quote I'm about to read to you actually comes from Psalm 39, uh, but it applies perfectly to what we're looking at today. Listen to this. The psalm ends without a note of hope, and that is instructive. It is remarkable that God not only allows his creatures to complain to him of their ills, 
but actually records those wails in his word. The very presence of such prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how men speak when they are desperate. What you have in Psalm 88, is it, it, this is a psalm in which someone is essentially accusing God of ruining his life. He's trying to put God on trial as though God owes him some kind of explanation. And he's, he's forgetting and refusing to be grateful for all of the good things that God has done in his past, and yet God chose to preserve this prayer in his word. That fact alone means basically God is saying, I'm willing, he's saying this to, to Haman, he's saying this to everyone who would approach Psalm 88 until you know, he returns. He's saying, I'm willing to be your God even if you walk through what you're walking through as badly as this man is. I'm still willing to be your God. I'm still willing to call you my child. And there's only one reason for that, and and verse 1 gives it away. It's because God is a God of grace. That's the only reason. What what God is saying, simply by including this psalm in the Psalter, God is saying, I'm willing to be your God. I am your God, not because you put on a happy face every morning, not because you always have the perfect flowery words to say, not because you're so great at reining your emotions in and keeping them in check, and certainly not because you walk through suffering perfectly well. What, what this psalm is saying is God saying, I'm, I'm your God for one reason, one reason alone, because I'm a God of grace. And it is often, ironically, only when life becomes unbearably dark that God's grace finally begins to shine, at least in our eyes. That's what, that's what these times show us about God, but, but with that, the other thing that this psalm shows is that it's also in the, dark, in the darkness of life uniquely that there's an opportunity for growth in you and growth in me that would never otherwise be possible. When, when, when you're experiencing, and I know some, some people, probably more than any, anybody in this room realizes, when you're experiencing what the author of this psalm was experiencing, what's happened in your life is you're not getting anything out of prayer anymore. You're not getting anything out of out of Bible study anymore. You're not getting anything out of worship. You're not getting anything out of giving. You're not getting anything out of serving. There's no benefit at all. And what Scripture is showing us here and what it shows us elsewhere is that it's those times in life when you're not getting anything out of your spiritual disciplines or your, or your acts of devotion to God. It's those times that hold within them the potential for you to grow in ways that would never otherwise be possible. And, and, and basically, the entire book of Job is a case study on this, this exact idea. If you're unfamiliar with the story, the book of Job begins with Satan essentially taunting God. And he points to Job and he says, does, does Job serve you for nothing, God? He's, he, he, he's, he's looking at Job, and it's, of course, it's not just an accusation of Job. It's an accusation of mankind generally. And Satan's saying, he's not in this for you. You've given him a good life, which is why he loves you and serves you and pretends to be devoted to you. You take the benefits away, and we'll find out exactly how shallow and skin deep his love actually is. So the book of Job begins with this kind of, it's almost like a thesis statement on the part of Satan where he's saying that the supposed love that the, quote, people of God have for God is not love at all. What Satan is saying is the love that people claim to have for God is not unconditional, it's transactional. They don't love you, God, for who you are. They love you for what they get out of you. And I'm going to tell you something that might be strange to hear a pastor say, he's right. That kind of transactional love for God that seeks to use him as a means to your own end, that love exists in your heart right now to a greater degree than you realize. 
You see it over and over and over in Scripture, and we would be fools to not admit that that love exists in our life right now at present. So here's the million-dollar question. How do you deal with that? Martin Luther said, he used this Latin term, incurvitus se, and what that meant is that the human heart is so deeply self-centered, the human heart is so curved in on itself that we, that we seek to use everything, even God, as a means to our own end. I just came across a quote from George Whitfield, a famous preacher in the Great Awakening, who said, I can't, he said, as a preacher, he said, I can't preach but sin. I can't pray but sin. I can't do anything for God but sin. He said, my repentance needs to be repented of. That's just a person who knows himself. So here's the question, how do you deal with that? And the answer is, there's exactly one way to deal with that. Take all the benefits of your relationship with God away. That's the only way. You take all the benefits away from your relationship with God, from your prayer and your your reading and your giving and your serving and your worshiping and your whatever, put you in the wilderness, put you in a dry season, you know, put you in the darkness for a long period of time, take away all the benefits. That's the only way for you and I to learn to what degree we've been loving God for our sake rather than his and in revealing that to us to give us the opportunity to develop a genuine, pure, and unconditional love for God. That's the only way. If there's another way, I am so convinced God would do it differently, but it's the only way. Uh, In um, John chapter 6, when I was thinking about this idea, immediately this scene from John chapter 6 came to my mind. It's a scene that I can, I I almost can't talk about it without getting emotional, Uh, and it's only going on to mean more to me the older that I've gotten. In John chapter 6, Jesus' ministry is exploding, and it's not hard to understand why. Because by John 6, Jesus has turned water into wine at the wedding feast at Cana. People tend to like it when you turn water into alcohol. Call it what it is. Uh, he has healed an official's son. He's getting ready to die. Jesus healed an official's son with just a word spoken over miles and miles and miles. You heal somebody's sick child, you, you, you're a fan favorite. And then on top of that, Jesus healed a man who is famously paralyzed for 38 years at the Pool of Bethesda. So Jesus has people flocking to him. Then in John chapter 6, Jesus gives his first I am statement. He says, on the bread of life, you come to me, you believe in me, you're never going to be hungry, you're never going to be thirsty again. And people are all about this because who wouldn't be all about that? So by John chapter 6, if you try to get there, I'm sure if we could teleport to that, there would have been a kind of palpable energy and excitement in the air where, where, you know, imagine the disciples, the 12 hand-picked lieutenants of Jesus. They see thousands of people flocking to their rabbi, and, and you know what they're thinking? They're thinking, oh my goodness, he actually is who we've been waiting for. This is this messianic figure that's come to liberate God's people from the oppressive yoke of Roman slavery, bring back the good old days, and this land's going to be flowing with milk and honey. Here we go. And then in John chapter 6, Jesus gives probably the strangest teaching of his time here where he tells people they need to literally eat his flesh and drink his blood. And Scripture says, just like that, with one wrong teaching, the movement died. John chapter 6, verse 66 says, many of the people that were following Jesus prior to that, they went home and they didn't want anything to do with him anymore. Now, what I ask you to do, try to imagine, try to imagine what that moment was like for the 12 disciples. They've seen this, this movement grow to the point that we could actually do something worth doing here. Jesus gives this one strange teaching and, and, you know, from a PR perspective, he just blew it. I don't think you can imagine how confused 
frustrated and disappointed. The disciples were right there in John chapter 6. And I, the way that the scene is painted is, is basically every, all these thousands of people go home and it's just Jesus and the 12 and the dust settles on this day that looks like a failure by anybody's standard. And I'm paraphrasing here, but Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, are you going to leave me as well? And Peter speaks up. This is the part that always gets me. Peter speaks up like he, like he so often does. I can't even talk about it. And he looks at Jesus and he just says, Jesus, where am I supposed to go? He doesn't even say, I don't want to leave you. He just says, I got nothing else. And it's, it's not hard for me to understand why. I feel like I sympathize with the guy. Peter was a fisherman. His life was planned out for him. He was going to pull fish out of the Sea of Galilee until he died. And in his day, rabbis did not patrol the Sea of Galilee looking for a young man to invest their life in. Peter did not have the resume for a rabbi to want anything to do with him. But Jesus came along and he pulled him out of that life and he changed everything. And, and Peter's thinking, I'm sure he's thinking in John chapter 6, Jesus, I knew how my life was going to go and you changed everything. And I've seen you do things I've never seen anybody else do. I've heard you say things that I've never heard anybody else say. And I don't know what you're doing here. I don't know why you would give a teaching like that. I don't know where this movement is headed. I don't know where you're taking me. I just know that if I left you, I wouldn't have anywhere else to go. So I'm staying here. And, and I'll tell you, the reason I share that is because it's only the dark times of your life. You know what I'm saying is true. It's only the Psalm 88 periods of time that God leads you through where you have no idea what God's doing in your life. You have no idea where he's taken you. You feel lost, you feel confused, you're terrified, you're angry, you're bitter. You have no sense of his love, you have no sense of his presence. Those are the only times in your life to give you the opportunity what Peter had the opportunity to say there. These are the only times in your life where you can stand before God and say, God, I don't get you. I don't understand you. I have all of these broken emotions towards you. But I know if I walked away from you, I wouldn't have anywhere else to go, so I'm staying right here. And, and see, that's exactly what's happening in this author's life in Psalm 88. Because, you, you know, you zoom in here, and it looks like, he, it looks like he's doing terribly. If you, if you go verse by verse, you, you're seeing a man who's lost his composure. He's undignified. His emotions are out of control. He's not acting like a leader should act in God's people. He's just a mess. But you zoom out from the whole prayer, and what you find is that it, it, as badly as he seems to be processing this, he's processing it toward God, and that's the point. He didn't stop bringing his brokenness into the presence of God. Psalm 88, at its essence, it's a prayer. So through this whole psalm, what Haman is doing is he's basically saying, God, I don't get you. I don't understand you. This isn't how I thought following you was going to go, but I don't have anywhere else to go except your presence. So here I am. I'm not leaving. And what was happening, although he could never see it in Psalm 88, is he was growing in ways that would never otherwise be possible, and there was a depth forming to his relationship with God that would never otherwise be possible. You stay on the mountaintop your whole life, you'll never have any depth like you will when God walks you through the valley. And it's no different for us. What, what this is showing us is that if, if you're able to hold on, if you can just hold on, maybe your prayers are as broken as Psalm 88. Maybe your emotions are just at, as out of control as Haman's is here. Maybe you're, you're breaking down, you're falling to pieces every day. You're a house of cards that, you know, you, one day you, do, you use all your energy to, to just stack a few, and then you crash again, day after week, after month, after year. The point is, if you can just hang on, there's a growth that's happening in your life. You might not be able to see, but you'll see it when the darkness lifts, and it's going to lift. 
And I remember in the fire department, when we were going through rescue tech and learning how to repel with rope systems and build pulleys, they told us, when you're looking for an anchor point, you need, they kept using this term. They said, you need an anchor point that's bomb-proof. A bomb-proof anchor point is an anchor that has no chance. There's no chance that it will shift or move or give way regardless of the stress that you apply to it or the weight that's attached to it. It will not move. And the point is, if you and I can simply hang on in the darkest times of life, then when we get to the other side and we're going to get to the other side, what those times do is they bomb-proof your soul. And it'll make you a person of poise and quiet confidence and humility and wisdom, and it can make you an, un, an unmovable anchor point even for the people that God puts around you, around you if you hold on. So here's the million-dollar question. How the heck do you hold on? Because I can stand up here and say, hang on, gang. I know it's tough. Uh, let's pray. That doesn't do anybody any good. So the question is, how do you keep holding on when everything in you wants to let go, when everything in you wants to walk away? I want to end today talking about the hope that we have through the darkest times of life. You zoom out from Psalm 88, and we're given the picture of a man who at least two things can be said about him. He feels forsaken by God and enveloped completely in darkness. Forsaken by God and in darkness. Forsaken by God and in darkness. I don't know how you, you see that as a Christian without immediately thinking about Jesus on the cross, as described in Matthew's gospel account. Matthew, listen to this, Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Haman felt the way that we all feel when we stand where Haman stood. Haman felt like the wrath of God rested on him. It didn't, because it literally rested on Jesus in his place. Haman felt like God had rejected him. He was wrong. He may have felt that way, but that literally happened to Jesus. Jesus literally was rejected. Haman felt like he was forsaken by God. He was wrong, because Jesus, he didn't know it, but Jesus, some 1,500 years later, would literally be forsaken by God. My point is, Haman felt like his darkness was total. It was not total. Because Jesus experienced total darkness. And the reason that Jesus went through all of that is because despite what Haman thought here, and despite what our hearts so often tell us, if we're willing to be honest, the reason Jesus went through all of that is because God actually does love us. He actually loves us. And he loves us so much, he was willing to go to unbelievable lengths to get us back. And to kill the sin that was killing us. And so in the greatest act of role reversal in history, God, instead of saying, suffer to get to me, go through all this to get to me, the gospel says God said, I'm going to suffer to get you. I'm going to go through all this to get you. And so God enters into human history in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And on the cross, what happens is Jesus Christ takes our sin on himself. And he pays the debt that we couldn't pay. And he gets the wrath that we feel like we have, but we don't. We don't know what Jesus went through. We don't ever have to know what Jesus went through. He gets the wrath that was ours. He gets the sorrow that was ours. He gets the isolation that was ours. He gets the pain. He gets the unanswered questions. He gets the darkness that was ours. And because Jesus went through all of that, now we have access to a, to a kind of hope that Haman would have given anything. His whole life pointed forward to it, but he would have given anything to know it like we know it. 
Now, I don't know if you caught this. At the very last verse, did you, did you notice how he, how he speaks? The very last statement in the psalm, Haman says, darkness is my only friend. And I couldn't help but think, why is Haman talking about friendship at the end of this psalm? He doesn't say darkness surrounds me or darkness envelops me or darkness is all I see. He says he refers to darkness as a friend. What he's saying, you can hear the cry of his heart there. He's saying even if this darkness doesn't lift, I would give anything if somebody could just walk through it with me. If I just had a friend who could walk through this darkness with me, then maybe I'd be okay. And the point is that the gospel says in Jesus that's exactly what you have. The gospel accounts tell us that Jesus, when he hung on the cross, experiencing the darkness that we're terrified of and that we feel like but we never literally experienced because of him, people taunted Jesus. They said, physician, heal yourself. They called him to come down. But Jesus stayed. And the point is, if Jesus didn't abandon you in his darkness, you don't have to fear him abandoning you in yours. That's Christianity. And even if you and I never understand why God led us through the darkness that he leads us through in this life, and I don't think we'll ever understand. I don't, we might get maybe a glimmer of an idea, but we're not ever going to understand it until glory. Even if we never even get that, that iota of an idea, what Christianity says is that in Jesus, you never walk through your darkness alone. In Jesus, that darkness never has the final word. And in, in Jesus, that darkness has no power over you except to somehow eventually one day make you even more like Jesus. Haman would have given anything to know that, anything to know that. You can know that today by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. I'm going to close today. I'll read a quote to you that I found years ago from Charles Spurgeon. It's long, but it's powerful, and I hope this means something to somebody today. He said, believer, if your inheritance be a lowly one, you should be satisfied with your earthly portion, for you may rest assured that it is the fittest for you. Unerring wisdom ordains your lot, and selected for you the safest and best condition. A ship of large tonnage is to be brought up the river. Now in one part of the stream, there's a sandbank. Should someone ask, why does the captain steer through the deep part of the channel and deviate so much from a straight line? His answer would be, because I should not get my vessel into harbor at all if I did not keep to the deep channel. You got to listen to me here. So it may be that you would run aground and suffer shipwreck if your divine captain did not steer you into the depths of affliction where waves of trouble follow each other in quick succession. Some plants die if they have too much sunshine. It may be that you were planted where you get but little. You were put there by the loving husbandman because only in that situation will you bring forth fruit unto perfection. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. You are placed by God in the most suitable circumstances, and if you had the choosing of your lot, you would soon cry, Lord, choose my inheritance for me. For by my self-will, I am pierced through with many sorrows. Be content with such things as you have, since the Lord has ordered all things for your good. Take up your own daily cross, it is the burden best suited for your shoulder and will prove most effective to make you perfect in every good word and work to the glory of God. Down, busy self, and proud impatience. It is not for you to choose, but for the Lord of love. I'll leave you with this. In Revelation 21, we're told that one day as the people of God, we're going to stand in the city of God and it will be a city that requires no external source of light because God himself will be our light. And scripture says the lamb 
will be our lamp. In Jesus, that light enters into your life here and now so that regardless of how you feel, your darkness is never total and it will one day give way to the light that you have longed to look on your entire life. I don't know why you're going through what you're going through, but it has an expiration date. And you don't. You don't. One day, that darkness is going to go away forever. It is never coming back. By grace, through faith, in the name of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father God, I know there's people listening to this that are in a Psalm 88 time in their life. I'm just asking, Father, that they would experience Jesus, the Savior who was willing to go through darkness for them in ways that would never otherwise be possible. Thank you that because Jesus had no friend other than darkness, that we can have you as a friend in our darkness. Please make it real to us, God. Please teach us to keep bringing our pain, to, be, to keep bringing our emotions, to, to keep bringing our cries and our wails and our prayers before you, even when we don't feel your presence or your love, knowing that one day it's going to give way. By grace through faith in the name of Jesus.